Welcome to Christian Life Church. Whether you're a longtime member or joining us for the first time today, our mission is to create environments where people can encounter God, resulting in purpose-filled lives based on a biblical worldview. If you're watching today on your mobile phone or gathered with your family around the television, or if you're here in person with us today, we invite you to join us as we worship the Lord, as we pray together and hear from His Word. Our prayer is that you'll encounter the God of Scripture who gives strength and encouragement and comfort to all those who come in. Thank you, Justin, and good morning to you. Those of you that are here and those that are over in Brown Chapel, those watching uh, live stream, we welcome you today in the name of the Lord. I want to um, encourage you. Uh, people have asked, Pastor, when, when are we going to go back to normal? When are we going to have two-service schedule? Um, what we're trying to do is just keep an eye on the situation and determine what is the wise thing to do. And I think what we're doing is we're going to watch it one more month and see how school goes with the kids and so forth. And um, we'll, we'll, we'll be monitoring it and watching it. I want to remind you that live stream will continue regardless of what we do. We see that as a part of our church from now on. I realize that there are people that love the Lord and love our church with all their hearts, but they're concerned about uh, getting out in public, and that is understandable, especially from those that are in high-risk groups. Um, I'm, I'm a member of one of those groups, and I understand um, the, the difficulty and the concern, and please understand there is no pressure from this pastoral staff to say you ought to be here. If you love Jesus, you'd be here. That would be a silly thing to say, but um, we're, we're open. We're open for business, as they say, but we also know that um, it's going to be a while before everyone feels safe to come back to church, and we want to give you peace over that. We want you to know that everything we're going to do can be done, that can be done, will be done, to be sure that you are still receiving the word. You know, I've, I've sensed from some people, and we've talked about this, we're not just filling in until we can come back together. We are in the process of moving forward. These messages are designed for us to move forward. It's things every Christian needs to know and things Christians especially need to be aware of as we move into the harvest day and into the next level. So uh, just let the peace of God rule your decisions, whether it's bringing your children back or not bringing your children back right now. Let the peace of God rule your decisions. There are people that will tell you that this is absolutely the thing that ought to be done. And there are people that will tell you that this is absolutely the thing that ought to be done. This group says if you don't do it, you're not following the Lord. This group says if you're not doing it, you're not following the Lord. And the troubling thing is that every one of them are a member of Christian Life Church. So what I'm trying to tell you, loved ones, is as pastor, I want you to walk in the peace of the Lord. That's what Paul's advice always was to those early churches. In, in situations of controversy, where things aren't clearly spelled out by the Lord, let peace rule in your hearts. That's the hallmark of the Holy Spirit. Now, um, I also want to tell you, that um, Justin mentioned that Pastor Corey is going to begin the study of Jonah this Wednesday night. Um, 
what's been going on as I took us through part one of Moses, the first six lessons. And uh, I'm taking a break in September uh, because I wanted Pastor Corey to be able to teach his lessons on Jonah. But in October, I'll pick up with part two of Moses and we'll do the last six lessons as we move toward the holidays. Let's open our hearts to the incredible grace of God. Let's pray together. Um, if you're here, if you want to stand one more time so you can stretch and we will pray the Lord's Prayer together as is our custom, young and old alike. Let's, let's call out to the Lord. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Zechariah and Elizabeth. Amazing couple. We find their story in the very earliest pages of the New Testament. Before the birth of of Jesus and before the birth of John the Baptist, I've had the privilege of being at, at uh, Qumran a couple of times, um, which is the place that many scholars and the people of Israel believe that John the Baptist was a part of, the community he was a part of, although the Bible doesn't say name Qumran by name, it says that he was in, his, in the wilderness to the day of his showing to Israel. But a lot of scholarship, and I, and I believe it as well, along with scholars, I believe that that was the place where John the Baptist did some of his unique study. And every time I've gone to Qumran, and Qumran makes this claim to being the residence of John the Baptist, I can't help but think about the story of his birth. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth, I, I kind of poke fun at Zechariah because it's okay. I, we're family. His last name was Chitty, and then Chitties have a tendency to follow in this path. Um, he was visited by one of the highest ranking angels imaginable, and he said, your prayers have been answered. Stop and think just a moment. What would it be like for you right now if an angel came to you and said, God has, has sent me to bless you. Your prayers have been answered. I wonder how many of us, um, no condemnation, but I wonder how many of us have been so focused on praying for something that if heaven said your prayers are answered, you'd know exactly what it was. I mean, these, this, this couple had, had bombarded heaven so much so the angel didn't think at first that it was necessary to even identify the prayer. He would very quickly say what it was. It was going to be for the birth of a son. And I kind of laugh sometimes because Zechariah said, how can this be? How is this going to happen? Uh, or or in, in our culture, how can this really happen? He said, my wife and I are old. You've had year after year after year to answer this prayer. And now you're coming to tell me that along with our social security check in a few months, we'll be receiving a new baby. And the angel said, okay, listen, you're not going to be able to speak anymore. 
until the child is born because you have not believed. That's a, that's a powerful indictment. You have not believed the word of the Lord. Now, it's easy for us to ascribe to other people in other groups, you've not believed the word of the Lord. But what do you do with these passages when somebody that is described as, and, and get this, he was a priest and he was described, he and his wife, as uh, righteous and blameless. How does that even happen? A righteous and blameless couple, the angel says, you have not believed the promise of the Lord. I think um, what we need to look at today and what I want to present to the growing and maturing body of Christ at Christian Life, we have to be careful. We may be righteous and blameless, but with the wearing down of time, of unanswered prayer, of disappointments in life, of adverse circumstances, what happens is our default response changes. I'm telling you, from being worn down, from being worn out, from being disappointed, your initial default natural spiritual DNA can actually lose its grip on your mind and you can default to unbelief if you're not careful. I talked to a pastor friend of mine uh, in another state and he said, I just, uh, I just don't even know if I have the church anymore. People that have loved me, I, I, I just, I don't know how to interpret their words anymore. And um, I said, oh, are you going to be okay? I said, it's just an awkward time. We're not able to come together. And um, he, his church has, has not had a system of regular meetings, even like we have. And uh, I, I said, I think you're, I think you're overstating it. I think it's going to be okay. And he said, I don't know. And he said, he said, the news and the hurt is speaking louder than I can. The news and the hurt is speaking louder than I can. And he said, I think that their typical response to the word of God has changed. It's, it's now a, yeah, but, or well, if only. And I want to tell you, loved ones, for all of us, it is so easy to be so beat down. It's easy for us to be so worn out. Now, don't be surprised by this. Daniel said that it was the job of Antichrist, uh, and, and we know Antichrist may not be here yet, I mean, as far as we know, but there is always the spirit of Antichrist, and there are always false teachers of Antichrist, John the Beloved said, and his job is to wear out or wear down or exhaust the saints of the Most High. That's, that's, his, that's his number one goal in your life. It's not to give you some heinous disease or to strike you with difficulty. The goal of the devil is to wear you down. And I think that's what happened with Zechariah. God didn't say, well, then I'll just move on to another couple. He said, no, you, you've been hurting so long that you've lost your instinct to believe. So but I want you to know, I'm going to still do what I promised. Aren't you glad that the purpose of God depends on his faithfulness and not ours? 
<laughs> I remember Max Lucado telling a story about, uh, about a little parakeet named Chippy. And some of you have, have read the story. Now, you got you to gotta keep in mind, fear and fatigue is what we're fighting right now. Uh, more so than we realize. The, the, the subtle thing about fear and fatigue is, you're, is you're, you're in the grip of fear and fatigue before you even know it. Well, some of us have been like Chippy. He was billed by his owners as the happiest, the happiest, the happiest little parakeet in all of North America. Sang beautiful songs all day long and was just the joy of this family. How many of you have ever owned a bird, a parakeet or something like that. I, I, I love birds. I had one, uh, a cockatiel named Gandalf and I loved him because uh, whenever I would come home, he'd hear me come home and he didn't do it for anybody else, but he did it for me. When I came home, I, I suppose he would know it was me because he'd hear me greet Ramona or the children. They were all little and he would just start chirping and chirping and chirping. And Ramona can tell you, Gandalf would not stop. He would not stop until I went to his cage, called him by name, and told him he was a pretty bird. Well, they're a lot of fun, but I want to tell you, birds are incredibly high maintenance. Um, they, they give you these little, cute, little, frilly things to put around the cage to keep everything inside. All that does is mean the bird has to flap it up higher so that it spreads further out in the house. And I understand what happened to Chippy. The lady said, well, I can't... I don't want to go in here and change the paper two times a week and do all this two times a week. And so when nobody was home, she thought, nobody will know if I just vacuum Chippy's cage. So she's vacuuming Chippy's cage and she's thinking, boy, this looks, this is great. She did it one time. It passed the inspection by all the family. Nobody suspected anything. The next time she did it, she was vacuuming Chippy's cage and she heard the doorbell ring and she turned like this. And you know the story. Chippy went in to the vacuum. Well, she was in an absolute panic. She opens the vacuum, pulls out the bag, rips the bag open, and Chippy is on his back, <laughs> choking to death. So she does what any good bird owner knows to do. She swooped. Chippy up in her arms, took him to the kitchen sink and began to douse him with cold water to wash out his beak and his mouth. And all of a sudden, have you ever seen a wet parakeet? They look like something out of the book of Revelation. And she, Chippy starts shivering. And she says, oh my word, he's going to freeze to death. So she takes Chippy upstairs to the blow dryer. And she turns the blow dryer on and fairly well cooks him. Gets his feathers combed out and he's alive, thank God. She puts him back in the cage thinking everything will be all right. And somebody hearing the story said, well, how is Chippy? And she said, well, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. And when he does, it's usually off key. Well, I understand him. God bless Chippy. Um, I... I'm going to tell you the story today in Malachi about a people that had lost their song. They had not lost the promise of blessing. They had not lost the, in, the promise of God's intervention. 
Um, that's what the devil wants to make us think has happened through fear and fatigue, that God has lost control or that God's no longer working in our life. Or when we finally begin to come to our senses, he wants us to think that we failed too deeply for God to have any obligation in which he needs to keep his word. I, I, I think it was best illustrated in my life when I was going through a very tough time decades ago as a young man, just in my early 30s. And I had faced opposition that I'd never have to face before. I didn't handle it well. Um, it was before I learned that you just don't get into church fights. You know, if people in church want to fight, you let them go. Uh, if you can't reason with them, you let them go. Just let them go and let them find a church where they, they fit. But I took on this fight and I said, Lord, how do I deal with this person? And I remember distinctly, I can take you to the spot where God spoke it to me today. He said, I want you to forgive him and I want you to sing over him. Now, I didn't do either one well. My forgiveness was forgive him, Lord, and bless him, Lord. I didn't do it well, but my song was ludicrous. God kept saying, sing over him. Well, Jeremy and I used to have a repertoire of great songs that we sang when he was a preschooler. We sang all kinds of songs about Jesus. We sang, but then we, I wanted him to have a few songs in his repertoire that were just old classics. Like, uh, uh, I got the knife, you got the gun, come on boy, let's have a little fun. I'm a jealous man, I'd die for love. If you don't want to meet me in the alley tonight, too late for talking and ready to fight, leave her alone. He knew that one pretty well. And there was one that we sang from the Country Bear Jamboree. Mama don't whoop, little Buford. Mama don't pound on his head. Mama don't whoop, little Buford. I think you should shoot him instead. And we loved that. We learned it at, 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 at uh, Country Bear Jamboree. And um, I said, Lord, I said, I want you to help me. Um, I said, today, I don't know how to sing over him. So, Lord, would you just help me sing over him? And I won't call his name because I, I wouldn't dishonor him. And I've long settled the, the issues that I struggled with. Let's just call him Corey. <laughs> and I remember as I was walking from one church building to the other, um, I would do what I usually did when I felt a song come into my spirit. And, and um, as I was walking from one building to the other, I said, Jesus, don't whoop little Corey. Jesus, don't pound on his head. Jesus, don't whoop little Corey. I ask you to shoot him instead. And I realized that I was beginning to get my song back, but it was not the right song. It was not the right key. Loved ones, the point I'm trying to make, and I went to great lengths, is that I want you to know, I believe God is preparing us for future days. I believe the greatest harvest lies ahead of us. But what the enemy wants to do is get us distracted from fear and fatigue and even give us the wrong song. I, um, I, I'm just, I'm talking about how hard it is. I know for some people to just rejoice in the Lord. You see what I had to learn as a, as a pastor of that church, I 
feel like I was right. I feel like I had been done wrong by this man from the very beginning. I feel like I had a claim for Jesus, just shoot him. But what God was in the process of teaching me is that before God can use us greatly, Chuck Swindoll said this, he's quoting someone else, but he said, before God, he said, it is doubtful that God can use us greatly before he allows us to be hurt deeply. I heard that and I rebuked it as a word from the devil. And God was in the process of teaching me that we can have a bad attitude or, or just be worn out. It's not that our heart is set on evil. We're just tired. We're just tired. We're worn out. And that is exactly what was going on, I think, in the life of Zechariah. I think that's what happens in our lives. And I think it's what the people of God were going through during the days of Malachi, Malachi the prophet. God is going to bring serious charges against them. God is going to say, you failed me seven ways. We're not going to talk about all those seven ways today. But at the end of it, God did not say this. He did not say, if you don't straighten out, I'll move on to somebody else. God did not say, if you don't quit doing this, it'll, it'll make null and void the promise I've made for the future. God said, I'm about to give you the most incredible blessing imaginable. I'm about to do for you something that's never been seen in the history of Israel. With that in mind, correct your ways. This is what he said at the end of these accusations. Look, this is Malachi 3, 1 through 4. Look, I am sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. The Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. And loved ones, I want to interrupt myself for 10 seconds to say this. The Lord we are seeking, even in the midst of this extreme difficulty, is suddenly going to come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver, so that they may once again offer sacrifices to the Lord. Then once more the Lord will accept the offerings brought to him by the people of Judah and Jerusalem as he did in our past. Loved ones, I submit to you today that we are on the brink of a third great awakening in North America. I believe that with all of my heart. I believe the best days of the church are ahead of us, not behind us. And I believe that the Lord's name will be honored as he brings transformation to our society. But what the enemy is doing is clouding our lives with disappointment with frustration, and as I said earlier, with fear and fatigue. And we've got to learn 
during this time. Oh, I'm not saying that there's not bad stuff. And I'm not saying there's not reformation in society that needs to take place. All of that needs to take place. We'd be an idiot to say there's nothing that needs to change in America. And that there are not injustices that need to be set right. I'm not arguing with that at all. That's long overdue. But I'm telling you, that's only one scene among many. And one of the scenes that we need to focus on while we pay attention to all of these other things is that the Lord is about to do something and we must not let ourselves get pulled away from letting him be the center of our life. Now, letting the Lord be the center of our life does not mean we ignore justice. The, the Lord being the center of our life doesn't mean we don't despise racism. The, the Lord being the center of our life doesn't mean nothing else matters, but it means that everything is filtered through him. In Psalm 121, the psalmist put it this way. <coughs> In the King James, it, it's like this. I will look into the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord. Now that's beautiful, but they're not saying, oh, I'm going to look at the mountains because when I look at the mountains, I see the grace and the help of God. That's beautiful poetry. John Denver would love it. But I want to tell you, that's not what was going on. They were in the midst of great adversity and difficulty. And they said, where does my help come from? I must look away from what's around me. I must look away from my circumstances. I must look to the hills. I must look to a higher place. And that's what God is trying to teach us. I believe it with all my heart. Now, let's talk about some things so that we understand the context. Uh, that's in your notes now. Um, first of all, we need to understand that all through the, the story of the Old Testament, as, as well as the New, there is always a remnant. There, you know, a lot of times people who embrace replacement theology, they think Israel is, is off the picture. Now that Israel is, God's focus is not on national Israel anymore. Um, and and they, they believe that the church has replaced Israel. Um, I, I don't believe that. I think the church is the natural growth of Israel. Israel was served a purpose and part of that purpose was to eventually include us Gentiles. But from whether you look at the beginning or the end, all through the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, there's always been a remnant. There's always been a people who sought God, whether it was under King David or in the days of Moses or whether it was in the days of Malachi. There's always been, although there are people that got pulled away to the side, there's always been a remnant that was pursuing him. When Jesus was born or before Jesus was born, there were still people like Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were said to be blameless and righteous before Jesus because their heart was searching for the Lord. There was a remnant. Um, now, let me give you just a little more background. Israel, uh, sometimes referred to as Samaria because that was their capital city, had been taken captive by Assyria in 722. Judah, which sometimes called Jerusalem because of the capital city, had been taken captive by Babylon in 586. And after 70 years of the Judean captivity, the captivity by Babylon, God promised a return. And now when we get to Malachi, that return has taken place. Malachi was written somewhere between 350 and maybe 400 years before the birth of Christ, um, according to conservative scholarship, but they have been regathered. The temple has been rebuilt. The walls of the city has been rebuilt. 
And God chooses to close the Old Testament um, with Israel the, much the same way he began his relationship with Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy said, you're going into the land, and this is how you are to live. Um, Deuteronomy was basically written and presented as a legal document. And I want you to know that Malachi was written as a legal brief. It was written as a legal document as well. It was the kind of document you would see when two people had made covenant together and one member of the covenant said to the other member of the covenant, you have broken covenant with me and here are the specifics of how you've broken covenant with me. That's what the book of Malachi is, back, is like. And when you read the book of Malachi, God brings seven accusations against Israel, seven, and he names them. And instead of Israel listening and repenting to all seven accusations, they respond with arrogance, with hostility. How have we ever done that? When did we ever do that? Why do you say this has happened? There was no show of repentance whatsoever, but God wanted to leave Israel with this understanding. <coughs> I'm giving you the invitation. You need to understand this. I am about to do something for you that you have never experienced before. It is absolutely unbelievable what I'm about to do, and I am going to do it. The question is, will you be ready for it? You see, loved ones, when I preach a message like this, I'm not saying like some churches might say, well, you better, you better do this, this, and this, or you're going to hell. Hell is a reality. Hell is a far worse place than we could ever imagine. But hell was never designed to be used by the church as a tool to control people. We, we're, we're not here saying get right or burn forever. I mean, you know, our, our church motto is not love Jesus or fry like sausage. I believe when a man or woman, a boy or girl makes a true commitment of faith to Jesus Christ, I believe they are wrapped in the security of his arms and his love and his grace. And God is bound and determined to work his purposes in our life, regardless of what he has to pull us through to get us there. So I'm not here to tell you, if you don't do right, if pastor doesn't do right, God's not going to move. God is about to move in ways that we will be flabbergasted by. The question is, are we going to be a part of it? Or are we going to look from a distance? You say, well, I've been a pretty devout Bible student. Well, the scary thing about the Gospels is that it is very possible for you and I to be devout and serious in our Bible study and still miss it. Jesus said to some of the religious leaders, he says, you are in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And some of those listening on were Pharisees, some of whom knew portions, large portions of the Old Testament by heart. But when your heart is beat down by unmet expectations, you can say some of the silliest things. For instance, you can say whenever Herod asks, where is the king of the Jews to be born? You say, I learned that in Sunday school. In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus saith the prophet, da, 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 da. But later, whenever Jesus was observed to come from Nazareth, they said nothing good can come out of Nazareth. What had happened is they were leaning on a verse without, without inspecting the life of Jesus a little bit deeper. 
Two or three questions would have revealed, yes, he grew up in Nazareth, but he was born in Bethlehem. Exactly where the king said that, uh, uh, or where the scripture said the king was going to be born. Later, they would do something like this. They would say, well, we know, we know that no prophet comes from Galilee. And everybody said, amen, that's right. No prophet comes from Galilee. True prophets come from, from down closer to Jerusalem. You know, and, and everybody accepted that as a fact. But what they didn't realize is that three or four of the major prophets came from Galilee. It was not even remotely true. Well, I better go on because you're looking tense. There were misunderstandings with which they wrestled. Israel did not understand they were poised for the greatest move of God in history, and Israel had failed in several areas specified by God, and their response was anger and arrogance. I want to tell you what cuts you off from the grace of God is not failure. What cuts us off from everything God wants to accomplish in our lives is that when God comes to deal with us, we respond with hostility. I'm going to take these seven charges and I'm going to summarize them into four statements because I truly believe that I see this. I'm, I'm not talking about you and you and you or you on the screen, but I mean in the church world in general, I'm seeing these four responses rise in this time of difficulty. Here's the first charge that God brought. You say, I don't hear your prayers and that I don't love and care for you. I'm seeing a rise in this. People that know God, that love God, but because they're facing adversity and difficulty, because God is not working in the way they want, in the time that they, they have gone from, I'm in a holding pattern or I'm, I'm in a tough place. They have jumped from that to God doesn't love me. Or God's not answering my prayers. God's not taking care of me. This is the way the Israelites responded to the charge. God said, I have always loved you, says the Lord. Now, their retort was, really? I mean, that ought to tell you you're on bad footing when God makes a statement. And you say, really? How have you loved us? Now, the reason they said, how have you loved us, show us how you love us, is because the word, the Hebrew word that was used in, in English, it's ahav, A-H-A-V um, is, is a transliteration of it. And that word was used of love that was demonstrated. You know, it, it, it wasn't used of love that was felt. Somebody might say, I love you. And you don't know what in the world that means. I, 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 you know, sometimes you get nervous because sometimes critics preface blowing you away with, you know, I love you. It, but God wasn't saying, I love you. And it was just some ethereal feeling that he had. Ahav was the word that was used of love demonstrated. Of love demonstrated. It would mean, I love my wife, so I bring her flowers. I love my wife, so I listen to her when she's upset. I love my wife, so I take out the garbage. I love my wife, so I serve her. I love my wife, so I prefer her, you know, first. And I'm, I'm saying wife because I'm, I think I'm seeing more women than men here today, and I want to keep the majority on my side. But uh, uh, you understand what I'm saying. 
love that holds a home together is love that is demonstrated. It's love that's demonstrated. And the interesting thing is that God said, that's just how I've loved you. Every time I've said, I love you, it's with an, an, a demonstration of that love. God would say, even when I say no, it's my love for you. Every time God said, thou shalt not, when you investigate it, it's God saying, I love you. Don't play in the street. Why? Because I love you. Don't stick keys in the wall socket. Why? Because I love you. Don't do this. Don't do that. And in a child's mind, mommy and daddy is just trying to make life miserable. But don't do that is an I love you. And they said, how have you ever loved us? They would going to another charge, but is at the heart of the same thing. You have said terrible things about me, says the Lord. But you say, what do you mean? What have we said against you? You have said things like this. What's the use of serving God? What have we gained by obeying his commands or trying to show the Lord of heaven's armies that we are sorry for our sins? From now on, we will call the arrogant blessed for those who do evil get rich and those who dare to punish them suffer no harm. He says, you are dishonoring me because you say I don't love you and you say, furthermore, it hasn't made any difference for me to serve the Lord. You're like Asaph in Psalm 73, the song man of Israel. This would be like Pastor Glenn getting up here and saying this. He said, I've done this, I've done that, I've done the other. And he comes to this conclusion, I have washed my hands for nothing. Or he says, I have lived right for nothing. Can you imagine Glenn getting up here and saying something like that? He's our worship leader. Well, that's what the worship leader of Israel said. But thank God that wasn't the end of the psalm. He went on, he said, but then I went into the house of the Lord. And the inference from that is then I went back into the presence of the Lord. And I realized my thinking is flawed. I'm thinking that it's not true. Loved ones, usually what happens when we don't think God is working for us, he works it out in his time, in his way. And we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. I should have known better. But how much better for us to, to acknowledge it early to acknowledge beforehand. He's working in ways I don't understand. It's what David Wilkerson called singing the right song on the right side instead of the right song on the wrong side. Okay. We misunderstand when we get angry and uh, because God isn't moving to our liking. The key word here, this is not in your notes, but this first question of God reflected ingratitude in the heart of the people. Ingratitude. Whenever John the Baptist was in prison and he sent messengers to Jesus saying, look, are you the one? I thought you were the one, but everything that's happening to me tells me you are not the one. Is it you or do we look for another? And Jesus said, tell John what you've seen, the blind hear, uh, or blind see, the deaf hear, go down under you know, the poor, have the gospel preached to them. He, he gave all of those messianic fulfillments. And then he added one statement at the end. He says, blessed is he who is not offended in me. That's what King James says. What that means literally is this. He said, go back and tell John everything he was looking for is being fulfilled and tell him one more thing. There's a special blessing for the person that does not get offended with me because of the way I do things. 
See, John wasn't disappointed in the results. John was disappointed that it didn't end the way he wanted to. He wanted to end on the mountaintop, but he ended up in the jail cell. Uh, it's the Jonah syndrome. We've all had that. God tells us to do his work. We do his work, but we hate the people that, oh, well, we don't hate them. That's too strong a word, but we're, we've got a gripe with the people that he tells us to do the work with. And when God shows mercy, Jonah says that he literally said this, I knew this was going to happen. I knew you were going to show mercy to these people. And loved ones, I want to tell you, the most righteous among us can get upset when God shows mercy to someone. You know, it's, it's the Peter principle, not the one out of the business world, but it's the one where Peter at Caesarea Philippi says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon. Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you. A few verses later, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be turned over to the Gentiles. I'll be crucified. And Peter says, no, you will not. Jesus says, that's Satan speaking, Peter. Don't listen to that voice. But it's interesting that after Jesus said that, it says that Peter kept on insisting. He insists into the next chapter. And we celebrate that wonderful story of the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus' glory is revealed and Elijah and Moses appear and Peter sees that and there's a voice. You say, what was all that about? The voice explains it. To Peter, James, and John, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to what he's saying. That was not just to make a mountain in Israel famous. He was saying, look, you can't function, Peter, in kingdom authority until you learn to listen to everything he says. I'm telling you, the Mount of Transfiguration was God taking time to tell Peter, you know, you're wrong about this. Listen to him. Listen to him. But we get offended and... I, we don't always listen. The second charge God brought, that had to do with ingratitude. The second charge had to do with self-righteousness. I see a lot of ingratitude and I'm seeing people fall into the trap, not intentional, of self-righteousness. You say you honor me, but you worship to please yourselves, not me. The Lord of heaven's army says to the priest, a son honors his father and a servant respects his master. If I'm your father and your master, where is the honor and respect that I deserve? You have shown contempt for my name, but you respond with this. How have we ever shown contempt for your name? Now, first they say, how have you ever loved us? And how have we ever showed contempt for your name? You have shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. Then you ask, how have we defiled the sacrifices? You defile them um, by saying the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is. In other words, try paying your taxes in the way you think is just instead of the way the IRS says is just. You have no idea the trouble that you've just unleashed on yourself. Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Our misunderstanding is that we tend to insist that Christianity must conform to our understanding and approval. Now, guys, that's not a big problem in churches like ours, but it is a plague. It is a blight upon Christianity right now. Um, 
I, I heard Ravi Zacharias say something one time. He said that he was uh, approached by a group of students and their big complaint, they kept saying, well, we might consider Christianity, but Christianity is so exclusive. Christianity says Jesus is the only way. And Ravi Zacharias said this. He said, um, first of all, he said, every major religion practices exclusivity. You can't go into Islam and be welcomed if you think there are other ways. Uh, you can't go into Judaism and be welcomed if you think there are other ways. Uh, the Eastern religions, they're, they're, with, the, you know, with the exception of a couple of minor ones, you have to repudiate something and, and, and tap into their enlightenment. Every religion says it's our way or the highway. Christianity included. He says, but this is the problem, Paul says in Romans. The real problem with Christianity is not the limitation of access, but the limitation of our autonomy. Romans says this, the problem is not that with Christianity is not that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The problem is not limitation of access. The problem is that when you believe that, you lose your autonomy to decide. And that's why men and women, if they want to believe in God, they make a God that is acceptable to them. They make a God that is politically correct. They make a God that makes no demands, just suggestions. And the result is a tendency to recreate God in our image. Israel had done this um, it's a close but no cigar strategy. The northern kingdom replaced Judah's worship system with a similar substitute. In other words, the northern kingdom, when they had their civil war and separated, the northern kingdom said, well, we'll have the, the right kind of worship, but we'll have it with our priests, we'll have it with our rules, we'll have it with our regulations, we'll have it with our holy place. And God said, that's not what I told you to do. Now, Judah would fall into a trap <laughs> that was perhaps more damning. They visited the, the, the nations around them with envoys and diplomats, and they came back with a desire to be like the, the nations around them. Now, God said through Jesus to the woman at the well, those that worship the Lord it's, are going to have to understand it's not a matter of do I do it at this temple or that temple, this mountain or that mountain. It's that we do it in spirit and in truth. The word there was self-righteousness. So we've got the people of Israel charged with ingratitude. You, you don't love us and, and you never take care of us. Um, they were charged with self-righteousness. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll live out the religious life, but we'll do it our way. And number three, they were guilty of tokenism, not Tolkienism. That's Lord of the Rings. But he put it this way. He says, you have failed to really return to me. Malachi 3, 7, ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But you ask, how can we return when we've never gone away? You see, I, that's why I was so upset when Pastor... Dana helped me cover stone when he gave his prophetic words. Um, I, 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 I got a lot I could say about that. I'm not giving it a wholehearted endorsement, but I, I do believe he heard from the Lord, but I think the key is, and what did it mean? But I was very concerned by a, a, a big name prophet whose name I won't mention. 
He just said, God never gives a word like this. God never can, brings condemnation on his people. God never rebukes uh, in this fashion. And I want to say that that was categorically wrong. The response to Coverstone is as, as deserving of critique as his prophecies might have been. You don't ever take the approach that God never corrects. God, and, and, and like the teaching of some famous preachers today, that God will never cause you to repent. God will never convict you of sin because it was all taken care of at the cross. That's dangerous and it's foolish. And it's not New Testament living. That's a sermon for another time and I preached it a dozen times before. But they said, we've, why do we need to return? We've never been anywhere. It's sort of like the days of Jesus where... Um, the Romans uh, or the Jews said to Jesus, why, why are you saying we can be set free? We are children of Abraham. We've never been in bondage to any man. Well, just forget about Egypt. Let's go forward. Uh, there were the period of the judges where they were constantly falling under the dominion of the inhabitants of the land. Then came Assyria that deported the northern kingdom. Then came the Babylons that ruled, that deported the southern kingdom. Then came the Persians and the Greeks that ruled over the land of Israel. They had known nothing but bondage for hundreds of years. <coughs> and right then there was a Roman centurion who was a head and a half taller than them looking over them as they said, we've never been in bondage to any man. Loved ones, one of the most dangerous places we can be is to be beyond correction and to be beyond reproach. Revelation 3.17, when Jesus was speaking to the Laodicean church, he said, you say, I am rich, I have everything I want, I don't need a thing, and you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Loved ones, if there's ever been a time in this troubling era in which we live right now, if there's ever been a time that we need to be open to the correction of the Lord instead of drawing lines in the sand around ourselves and say, if you don't believe what I believe, if you don't see it as I see it, you're not worthy. If there's ever been a time that we all need to be humble and let God point out the blind spots in all of our lives, it's now. It's now. Um, it, Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. He was telling the story about the, 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 uh, the publican, the, the, the tax collector that was, was hated and the, and the Pharisee. He said, one was a Pharisee, the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like the tax collector. And you know the story, the tax collector said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, the tax collector went out more justified. Uh, but I wanna tell you, I was teaching this story one time to junior boys. And I said, boy, this, this guy thought he was righteous. And he said, God, thank you, I'm not like this guy. Y'all understand what was happening? And they said, yes. And you know how I ended class prayer that day? Lord, first of all, we wanna thank you that we're not like this Pharisee. I did the same thing. I just changed the pointing of the finger. And it dawned on me, I, just, I taught the lesson and then stepped into the same trap. I was at a group of men that had, and, and women that had been uh, really set free by the power of God. Their testimony was something like mine at the James Robinson thing. 
And I was in a group of probably 20, 25 men. And please understand, I don't think my life's been perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And I wasn't there to critique. I was there to learn. But as I sat through the first day, the second day, I began to realize, I don't know how to say it except to say it this way. And I spoke this to the men. I said, loved ones, I said, we're all here celebrating our freedom, but some of us are bad-mouthing our, pris- our imprison or uh, those that imprisoned us. And some of us are bad-mouthing those that don't see it the way we see it. And I said, I have a word for the Lord for you. And, and it was so poorly received, I left shortly thereafter. It was not well received. I said, but I want to tell you, some of you have done nothing more. You've not been set free. You've just been moved to a larger cell. And you think you're free, but you're as much in bondage now as you ever were. And um, that, was, that was not on my top 7,000 list of most successful messages. But it was true. Number four, he said, you have disregarded my covenant by ignoring the core principles of life. Now, <clears throat> this is where he talks about the offering. Now, I, 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 I don't have time to go into great detail, but the Lord picked a core principle of life and said, you've ignored it. The only time you hear anything from Malachi preached almost always is when a pastor needs to raise money and he goes to Malachi and says, you've cheated God with your tithes and offerings, put me to the test. And that's that verse, those verses ought to be enough to help us understand the value of giving. But that's not what it was about. It wasn't just about giving. And what I'm trying to say today is not you know, some of you just aren't giving. You need to give. In fact, you have been so gracious. You have kept up uh, your giving um, phenomenally through these six months. You have, you have been faithful in your giving. I've got nothing to say uh, negative about your giving. You've done a phenomenal job. And I just would encourage you, please keep it up. Because in order to keep going forward and keep the church open and all of this, we need, you know, everyone to be faithful in their giving. And you have been. That's not what I'm doing here. God was bringing Israel back to the idea of committing on a core life level to him. Um, we, we have a battle going on. Do we keep the laws of Moses or do we not keep the laws of Moses? I want to say this. The word of God is always infallible. The word of God is always complete. Um, but what you've got in the law of Moses, when it applies to Israel, when God gave them the civil law, you know, this is how you conduct your business, the ceremonial law, this is the feast you were to have in the holy days you, you are to observe, and um, the moral law, you know, the Ten Commandments and moral issues. You've got to understand that God, was, God had taught by, by principle what was right and what was wrong. And then he gave Israel a grid in which they could live. You say, well, I think we're still bound to the law. No, you don't. You, you, you may eat a certain way or you may observe a, a Jewish calendar, but you don't really believe that we're bound to the law because you don't dress that way. You don't live that way. Um, you, you know, it's a, it was a sin to wear two different types of fiber at one time. Um, and, you know, you need to do a check right now. Am I mixing polyester with something here? Polyester itself would be a, you know, a sin. Um, I don't mean to be crude, but you were not to allow, um, I'm talking about husband and wife. I'm not talking about immorality. You were not allowed sexual relations the night before coming to worship. Um, and and I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to say, just think back, you know, just think back. You answer the question. And, and that was because God 
Listen, that was because God was putting in their mind an understanding you're in a nation full of worshipers of Baal that the way they express worship was through sexuality. So he said, I'm giving you as Israel a law that you must observe to keep you free from letting your worship look anything like the inhabitants of the land. No, it's, 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 a, it's a fashionable statement to, to be Hebraic, but I don't know of any Christian that's ever seriously tried to live by the law of Moses. We don't do it. And, and the good news is we don't have to do it. We don't have to do it. God gave Israel these laws to say, this is what it looks like to be lived out. Let me give you a statement. God used rules to illustrate principles. God used names to illustrate relationship. And God used feasts, feasts and sacrifices to illustrate holiness. Everything that was given by way of this is the way the Israelites are to live was to show them the principle and the principle was fulfilled in Jesus. I don't keep the law of the sacrifices because all of that's been fulfilled in Jesus. I don't uh, keep the holy days, although I can observe them as a matter of historical significance because it's all been fulfilled in Jesus. I do not have to obey the law of Israel. Now, I, I maintain its moral law. I keep the Ten Commandments because all of those are, are followed through in the, in the New Testament. But uh, we, we don't live, you know, if we live under the laws of the land, not the laws of Moses. Uh, the, the court doesn't recognize it. The court was based on it, but it's, it's not line by line. Now, you say, what are you trying to say? I'm trying to say that God brought them back to some principles. Let me say this about principles. Um, a very wise man told me this one time, rules are timely. Now, God teaches through rules. Rules are timely, but principles are timeless. An illustration, my dad gave me a rule when I lived at home. I was a, a minor. He says, you have to be home by, depending on what day it was, 10 o'clock or 11. You, have, you cannot stay out past 10 or 11. Why? It was my rule. He says, all he had to do is say, because I said so, that's why. But my dad said, I'm giving you this rule because nine and a half times out of 10, nothing good is going on out there after 10 or 11 o'clock. So this is your rule. Now, when I got out of my teens and I had gone off to college, I'd come home for the summer and the little while I lived at home, I had no rules like that. But I tell you what I did do, I lived by the principle. The principle was I was in at a decent hour because even though the rules no longer binding, because the principle was if I stay out all night, I'm going to get in trouble. God gave us rules and, and or God gave us principles that he illustrated by giving us rules. And once we grow and understand the, the principle, we're set free from the rules. Now, I know that sounds very confusing, but this is what I want you to understand there are some things that were in the law of Moses that were before the law of Moses. I don't pray and worship because it's in the law of Moses. I pray and worship because it was there before the law of Moses. I, I, um, I don't, um, and, and, well, yeah, let me go ahead. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run out of time. Um, I, I worship and pray because it was before the law of Moses. The Sabbath the Sabbath, God said, here's how you obey the Sabbath, 
but the Sabbath was before the law. And we know clearly from the teachings of Paul, we're not bound to a Sabbath day. Every day is the Lord's, but we are bound to the principle of the Sabbath. And let me say this, we're bound to the principle of the tithe. Christians are divided on whether we have to tithe because they tithe before the law or whether that was about giving. Uh, I will say this, I think tithing is a good system that works. And I, the principle of giving, uh, a lot of people say, I, you know, I'm not bound to tithe and then they don't give anything. So that's just an excuse. But let me tell you, let me tell you this. The thing about worship and prayer, the thing about tithing, and the thing about the Sabbath are all connected to one core value. Life cannot be lived in the strength of the flesh. We had a Sabbath because the Sabbath stretched their faith. That was a day they needed to work. And whether it was the Sabbath day or the Sabbath week or the Sabbath year, or the year of Jubilee, God said, you cease from your labors on this day. Why? Because your mind tells you, I got to work. I work from day to day. I've got to work. Sabbath says, no, I live my life in a way I trust God. I set everything aside for a day to celebrate that God is my provider. The tithe is set on the principle, I give the first tenth of everything away because God is my provider and God can do more with 90% in my life than I can do with 100% in my life. Worship and prayer, the same thing. I don't let worship and prayer become something that I refer to when I'm in trouble. It's something that's a daily part of my life to acknowledge up front, I need God to make my life meaningful and purposeful. So he was calling them back. The bottom line is Messiah is coming. Live in integrity of heart. Be guileless. There's more in your, heart, in your notes about this and start the journey. Now, wh how do we wrap this up with the Christian life lessons? There's five of them, but I, I, I'm going to be very, very brief. First of all, Christians must shun both antinomianism and legalism. In other words, you've got to shun the idea that the law is nothing. Some of the greatest leaders in Christianity are telling you to just detach from the Old Testament. I know of nothing that will ultimately be more damaging and more destructive than to take the Old Testament and, and say it doesn't matter. Uh, the, Old Test, the New Testament is not complete without the Old Testament. Now, <clears throat> so antinomianism, there is no law, is damaging. But so is legalism where you try to fulfill every rule that's ever been given instead of grasping the principle of it. Now, there are rules that are non-negotiable, but there are rules that also point us to a higher principle. Jesus said, beware of the leaven three times. He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. That was the leaven of legalism, the teaching that you got to keep all the rules with no, no bending whatsoever. He said, beware the leaven of the Sadducees. That was liberalism. I'm not talking about political liberalism. That was a liberalism that said, well, you pick and choose what you want of the word of God. The Sadducee says, well, we believe these five books are of God. We don't believe these are. We believe these doctrines in Bible we accept but we don't believe these. So a liberalism theologically says, I'll pick and choose. And then he said, beware the leaven of Herod. And that was just for the sake of having all else. That was licentiousness. That's an old King James word. Herod loved to hear the preaching of John, the Bible says. He loved to hear the preaching of John. But on the other hand, he had no intention of obeying it. 
had no intention of obeying it. There are a lot of people that expect the church to be the church, and if the church isn't the church, they get all upset. But there is no degree of righteousness or holiness in their life whatsoever. They say, you preach the word, but I'm not going to have anything to do with it. So shun both of those extremes. Number two, we are saved by grace through faith that exhibits works. We are saved by the grace of God, his extending hand, his good uh, will toward us, and his good work within us. Grace says, come as you are, and grace says, I will enable you to become all that you were meant to be. We're saved by grace, which is received through faith. We have to believe the word. We have to believe the claims of God. And then we have good works that follow. It has nothing to do with our salvation. Loved ones, one of the most damaging for, for the Christian who tries it and for the world that observes it. One of the most damaging forms of Christianity is people to say, yes, I'm a Christian, but then not live out the life. Well, let's, let's hurry on. Number three, adhering to rules without principles leads to bondage. But rules born out of principles grant liberty. Number four, it does make a difference whether or not we obey, even if we are bound for heaven. It makes a difference whether we obey or not. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. And number five, if we don't grasp this principle, we can go to heaven while missing out on our destiny here on earth. You say, well, pastor, what do you want? What do you want me to do? You want me to come to the altar? I, I, I don't even know that this is one that needs an altar call. But this is one that we need to take very seriously. John said, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in truth. I want to talk to you about a, a man that I grew up with. He was, I don't know, five, six years older than me probably. We've picked on Corey. We'll call him Justin. He, he is a man that's alive today serving the Lord. And I remember he came from very, very poor background, public housing, um, had almost nothing. But through his excellent scholarship, he earned, uh, um, he earned a scholarship through his excellent abilities. He earned a scholarship to a major university. And I remember the night before he was to leave to go to school, he got in the altar, he prayed, he said, God, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to help me be strong and true. He went to the university, and like so many of our young people, uh, that's why I think SESL is so important in programs like it, um, he got out there and began to hear godless humanism and began to, to hear godless reasoning from the professors. Next time I saw him, he declares himself to be an atheist. Well, for years, he was just such a, a, a pain in our hearts, not a pain to us, but we hurt for him because he walked in direct opposition of everything he had been raised to be. Years later, he came to the Lord, back, came back to the Lord, and we asked him, you know, what happened? He said, I got into a university, a very prestigious upper-class university, and I saw a lifestyle I'd never seen. I saw privilege I'd never seen. I saw riches I'd never seen. I heard wisdom proclaimed, and he did wisdom like that, 
with, uh, in a fashion I'd never heard. And he said, I just thought, he, he said, I just, I, I walked away. He said, but all of these years, I kept coming back. He said, it would be, my mind would be flooded with humanism and human reasoning and reasons that God could not possibly exist. But he said, a nagging thought kept coming back to my mind. He said, it was sister so-and-so in junior boys Sunday school class. It was brother so-and-so in Royal Rangers. It was brother Stevenson talking about this verse of scripture. He said, I never could get away from truth. He said, as much as I tried to stamp it out, he said, truth kept coming up like, like, a, like, a, like a bad vine you were trying to get rid of. You stomp it out here, it came up there. Adrian Rogers tells the story of uh, an American missionary or a missionary to American Indians the missionary had led almost the whole community to Christ. And he took their leader and was taking him for a conference outside. First time this young Christian had been outside the uh, reservation. He said, we took the bus from the reservation, uh, the town near the reservation to Los Angeles. We got off the bus. He said, when we got off the bus and started walking to our destination, there was a man standing on the corner that was preaching, but he wasn't preaching the gospel. Had a, had a Bible in his hand, but it wasn't the word of God he was preaching. He said, my instinct was to grab my young missionary uh, uh, Indian convert and take him away because he'd never been off the Native American re reservation in his life. He said, and then I thought, I can't shield him from everything. He said that they stopped to listen and he watched, he said, are you wanting to listen to this man? And he said, yes. And he said he listened for probably 10 minutes or so. And then he looked at his missionary father in the faith and said, that's all, that's all I wanted to hear. And he walked away and there were, there were it was a horrible presentation of what was being preached. It was not the gospel. And the missionary asked the uh, Native American, what did you think of it? He said, well, at first I was thrilled. He's the only man I ever heard preach besides you. I thought he was good because he looks like you. He was holding a Bible in his hand. He said, so I wanted to listen and learn from him. And he says, what did you think? He said, I was confused because it was not what you said. He said, and then I said, Lord, help me to understand. He said, and a voice began to speak to me. And he said, when he would make a statement, the preacher would make a statement. The voice says, liar. Another statement, liar. Another statement, liar. He said, and then the voice would begin to say, liar, and give me verse to contradict what he had said. He said, this happened six or seven times. And he said, I remembered that some Sunday... You told us that we have the Holy Spirit and one of his jobs is to lead us in all truth. And the man said, I did say that. And he said, Pastor, I think he just did. I think he just did. And loved ones, I want to tell you, this is not a knee-jerk reaction what I'm preaching. This that I'm preaching today is to tell you, you have the seed of God in you. And it's going to rise up. 
Don't view this time of pandemic when things are out of the normal. Don't view it as a, well, I've just got to sit here and watch reruns of gun smoke, you know. Understand that God is giving us the privilege of on-the-job training and the Holy Spirit, even though we're not able to gather as we want, the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. Hey, we got to go. There's people, there's stuff burning on the stove, those of you at church at home. Um, others of you, you have, you got to find a restaurant that'll take six people and, um, I need to let you go. But remember he who began a good work in you will be faithful, bring it to completion. Father, as we end our service today, I pray for the grace of God to touch folks at home. I pray for the grace of God to touch folks here. May we return And when you challenge us, may we not offer silly responses. May we not respond with hostility and arrogance, but may we hear the voice of the shepherd. In Jesus' name, and I'm not talking about me, loved ones. I'm talking about him. May we hear the voice of the great shepherd. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Join us next week. We'll be in the book of Hebrews. God bless.